Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer. I am Max Barrick. And I'm Ahmed Bindra. And today's an exciting one because we have somebody from the dark side. I'm kidding, of course. Um, we have our first defense lawyer, a friend of mine, I'm going to say, who I had a case with at once, David Weldon, of, who is of counsel at Barnes & Thornburg LLP. David works with business owners and in-house counsel and HR professionals. He received his JD from John Marshall Law School. Uh, and graduated magna cum laude and order of John Marshall, which means he's a lot smarter than most of us. So David, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, yes, I am from the dark side, a proud member of the dark side. So happy to be here on the other side of the aisle. We, we obviously are kidding, you know, just like we on the plaintiff side think everybody deserves counsel. You know, businesses work really hard. Amit and I are always hammering it. A lot of these cases involve quite a bit of gray area and there are always two sides to everything. And it's important to have good people who are also who are good lawyers who are also good people on the other side. So there, there's a place for all of us. So so to that end, you're our first guest that is primarily focused on representing employers and businesses. How did you end up in this area? I really, you know, I think it's a common theme. I am a listener of yours. So I, I truly am happy to be here. And I think it's it's the familiar story in terms of I really fell into employment law. I really fell into practicing law in a sense too. We could talk about that separately. But, you know, employment law, the short version is I was a first year law student at John Marshall. And much like many law students, didn't have any sense of what I wanted to do, taking all the general classes. And I had a very close uh, childhood friend of mine who was a law student a year ahead of me, actually at a different school. And she was very gung-ho about employment law. And, and we had a conversation that proved to be fateful when she said, you really should take a look at employment law. It's kind of an up and coming area. I think you'd like it. And I said, I have no idea what that is. But when it came time to look for jobs after my 1L year, I, I kept an eye out for employment law opportunities Got one at the first firm that I started with. It was sort of a public sector labor employment education and, and really haven't looked back ever since. Well, we can't let you off the hook that easy. How did you fall into being a lawyer or law school? So my dream as a child was to be in law enforcement. It eventually matured to the point of, and I guess I thought so highly of myself, I wanted to be an FBI agent, you know, just skip right above the local I was the guy who watched cops. There was a, a TV show called, I think it was called Real Stories of the Highway Patrol. It was sort of a wannabe cops, that sort of stuff. Um, I went to the University of South Carolina undergrad and was a criminology and criminal justice major. So I had my eyes set on that, was going to go into higher level. That was a big university that the FBI would recruit from. And in the midst of my time in criminology and criminal justice, we had to take a criminal law class, not surprisingly. And my professor uh, for that class was a guy named John Burrow, PhD, multiple master's degrees, and a JD. And I really enjoyed him, enjoyed starting to kind of understand the legal side of things. And after talking with him more, he said, why don't you look at, at kind of being a, a criminal lawyer? Maybe that might be another opportunity for you. So that's kind of where I diverted off the law enforcement. You know, you, you start learning about those cases and wasn't really keen on getting shot at or killed. The pay 
isn't great and it comes with a lot of, you know, hardship on family and all. So I said, okay, I'll look at it. So I really, from that point on, was more focused on criminal law. And then of course, get to law school. And, and once I took criminal law, I quickly realized this isn't for me. I, I love the cases. I love the fact patterns, but the actual legal analysis, you know, actus reus, mens rea, no thanks. Not, and so that's kind of how I, my varied path to become a lawyer and then to end up being an employment lawyer, all, all from just wanting to be a cop. I feel like that's a common thing with people who go to law school. A lot of us watch too many procedural cop shows or have seen too many, you know, instances of Perry Mason, right? You get the innocent guy off in this real beautiful speech and trial, but like in practice, you know, criminal law is tough and, and a lot murkier. The it's, I mean, I'm at, and I talk about gray area. That's a lot of gray area, you know, so you probably made the right choice there. Absolutely. And, and I guess I should have known I was really, less of a Perry Mason fan, but I love Matlock. And as least as I remember, Matlock was sort of a do everything lawyer, but I think he did some civil case. So I always enjoyed Matlock, but never watching that show did I think I would end up being, you know, a lawyer practicing employment law by any stretch. It just, that's where I ended up and haven't looked back. Yeah. I watched a lot of Matlock and I read too many John Grisham books. So here I'm, I am. I- I'm a huge fan of John Grisham. Yeah, and John Grisham has that. That brings up another theme. He's a Mississippi guy. So I hide it well, but I am, as I just mentioned, I went to University of South Carolina. That's because I'm from South Carolina originally. So Southern lawyer mystery novels, John Grisham, right up my alley. Nice. So I guess getting back to the work you actually do, can you tell us a little bit about what your practice, now that we know how you got here, can you tell us a little bit about what, what here looks like? What's your practice my practice is, is truly the full spectrum of labor and employment law. And that's in part because I started out of law school at a smaller, as I mentioned earlier, labor employment education firm, and have gradually worked my way up to larger law firms. So of course, Barnes and Thornburg is an AmLaw 100 firm. We've got 700 plus lawyers and 20 offices. But, but my background was in progressively getting bigger, but small law firms where I had to be a generalist that can handle anything that came in the door. We just didn't have a big team. In some cases, it was me and, and a few people. So I've kind of carried that through. Maybe at some point I'll become sort of a specialist, but I really enjoy the variety. And that means both at the top level, labor, traditional labor, union related issues, employment, employment counseling, litigation. I mean, you name it. There, there are very few areas that I haven't dabbled in at some point. Now being at a place like Barnes, I have the benefit of having, I think our, our L&E team is 75 deep. So if I've got a nuanced you know, OSHA question or affirmative action, I can kick it. But I am truly a general L&E practitioner and I, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I love the variety of litigation and counseling and labor and employment. And I think it's, it's proved beneficial just for me, but also for my clients, because they know they can call and, and good chance I've had some experience with it. And if not, I can find someone who does. So, so here it is, I guess. So obviously it's a different experience when you're at a bigger firm, but what are some of the challenges or what are some of the main differences other than the obvious that you just described? You got a really deep bench. Is it just, you have bigger clients? Are they more apt to be aggressive and litigate more aggressively because they have that bigger firm defending them? Yeah, I don't know if it's just so much aggressiveness. I mean, some of the practical things day to day that that a big law firm creates that can be challenges. There are many, many benefits, but some of the challenges that that you might overlook are things like conflicts of interest. I mean, our conflicts processes can take hours because you know the the list of clients and potential former clients. So there are times when, you know, if you're at a smaller shop, it's just easier. Client comes in, you say, sure, we can handle it. You walk down the hall, talk to your two colleagues, we've never done any work. You know, the conflicts check process at a large law firm is intense and there are 
invariably some sort of connections that you have to navigate through. So that can present some challenges, particularly if you're younger in your career, as I like to think of myself as, and, and you're trying to bring in new work and you don't want to disrupt. I think the other thing is certainly the clients I work with day to day are varied in terms of size, geographic location, level of sophistication, but certainly at large law firms and Barnes is no different. You do have some large institutional clients that have been there a long time. And that comes with some added pressures to sort of maintain that relationship. It's not like, you know, it's a one-off client and, and you're less concerned. They might've been a client for 30 or 40 years, and you don't want to be the lawyer who suddenly calls that client relationship into, into jeopardy. Of course, I've never been there, but those are some of the things, you know, the pressures that, that kind of come to mind when you're on those types of cases and you know what the stakes are, not just in that case at hand, but for that relationship as a whole. I think your client contacts are different too. You know, some are probably business owners, some are probably HR professionals, some are attorneys. Yeah, it varies quite a bit. And again, I, I, I enjoy that. But yes, on any given day, if you looked at my calendar in terms of who I'm talking to, the clients vary. And, and, and there's always a correlation for the most part with, with if you looked at the client name and had a basic sense of who they are, who I might be talking to. So I might be talking with you know, in-house L&E counsel at, at a large corporation, and they might be one of 20 in-house lawyers who do nothing but labor and employment. And the next hour, I might be talking to a small business owner who has no legal experience, doesn't know anything. And so I think it's enjoyable. It's not, I, I, I'm guessing there's probably a perception sometimes that if you're at the large law firm, you're only dealing with, you know, the gigantic corporations of the world all day. And it's not, it's at least not the case in my practice. And I, I appreciate that. It's a good mix of people. Every conversation, every relationship is a little bit different. You building on that a little bit. So in terms of the folks that you deal with day to day, I'm, and I'm always curious about this on the plaintiff side, um, who you talk to often, I'm assuming the person you're talking to on the other side, and I'm going to be careful about this, but the person you're talking to on the other side, maybe somebody who's been accused, let's say it's not just, Hey, you know, we have this uh, quick question about, some compliance issue, or we're about to onboard somebody, can you tell us something to watch out for? Or they have this unique issue. Maybe it's, hey, we just got this nasty gram from a plaintiff's law firm, and it's accusing maybe me, you know, the business owner or the HR professional or the supervisor, whoever, of all manner of misconduct. Are there different challenges when the person you're talking, well, it's kind of a dumb question, I guess, but what are the different challenges you'd face when you're talking to the person who may be accused of it versus you're talking to somebody at the top of the food chain and somebody in middle management may have allegedly done something that, that got them in hot water. Yeah. And I do have those conversations. I think the obvious one is the biggest one. And that's just the emotional reaction that comes back when, you know, particularly if you haven't been in a situation where someone's accusing you of breaking the law and in many cases doing some pretty nasty, unfair things, that's, that's a whole different level of, of bringing a personal touch to the case in a bad way for that reason if at all possible, my, my normal practice is to try and not screen that person out, but at least get another body in the room, try to remove it. But that's not always possible, just given the composition of the client. And, you know, it, one of the things I try to always talk with, with those folks is, you know, many of these claims are, we see them as practitioners every day. Maybe we become a little bit numb to it, but I think it's refreshing in a way as a practitioner to have those kinds of conversations to see this is a real person. And then it gives me something to say back to the other side. You know, I've personally spoken with, you know, Joe Smith and he's, he's really upset by this. It's stressing him out. He he's firm with me that this didn't happen, but 
it also goes to that bigger notion that, that I always try to fight against as a management side lawyer, because it's easy for people on the plaintiff side or the plaintiffs themselves to kind of cast a lot, you know, it's a corporation, they have X dollars, they have this many locations. And I always try to remind plaintiffs counsel and plaintiffs, corporations a legal fiction. A corporation is run by people and you're accusing specific people, X, Y, and Z of doing these things. So yes, there's a corporate client that's on the, on the case caption, but the people I'm talking with day to day don't view this as a big corporate matter. They have a very personal stake in it. And I think that's usually helpful for the other side to see and sort of remove this, maybe veils the wrong term because of the legal doctrine, but, but it's really is that it's, the people I'm talking with are people. They run the company. The people who need to authorize a settlement or are going to be deposed, those are people just like you. And, and in most cases, they're employees just like you. They might be more educated. They might be better paid, whatever the case may be. They're still people at the end of the day, and they're still employees themselves. And I think the process is probably different, too, when you're dealing with a business owner directly or in-house counsel. On the one hand, you're going to have more emotions, probably, but maybe a resolution is easier to get to. On the other side, you're going to have more bureaucracy. Absolutely. You know, sometimes there's a benefit to having that business owner, the decision maker, so to speak, being my point of contact, because I can cut to the, to the heart of the matter really quick. In-house lawyers are fantastic and they serve a, a role, but there definitely can be situations where having to run things through a middle person and having limited access to who's ultimately the decision maker or the offender can prove challenging, can, can, you know, require more time and, and more finesse in terms of getting an outcome that's fair. So definitely there are pros and cons. And that's why I said at the out, I mean, I just, that's, what's fun to me. That's what's, what's, what's enjoyable. And what I love waking up to do every day is, is the, you know, the, the drama and the emotion and the realness that's involved in labor and employment disputes. And then I see that just in dealing with my clients too. It just at no two cases are the same and it, and it makes it so enjoyable. I couldn't imagine, for example, being a corporate lawyer, you know, working on stale deals and, and provisions all day. It just doesn't appeal to me. I, I enjoy those opportunities to interact, whether it's with my own client or opposing counsel or judges to um, have a chance to convince people and, and, and really just get to know people. And that's what I use every case is, is an opportunity to get to know everybody involved. I, I had somebody on the management side who's a dear family friend tell me one of his favorite parts of it, right, is that every time you have a case or every time, I mean, if you're in litigation, right, like in our world, you get to learn about a new industry and you kind of learn the ins and outs of a business and, and just how people do things. I don't know. It's a kind of cool learning experience we get every day that maybe not every lawyer gets. It absolutely is. And I, I think one of the areas where I see that probably the most is in the traditional labor space. You know, when you're dealing with union contract administration, collective bargaining, it's a different feel than just your typical employment counseling or litigation matter. You really have to kind of go in knee deep to understand. And if you're, you know, if you're doing collective bargaining negotiations, you're truly sitting across the table from a committee of employees who work at that, at that plant or that facility. And you really get to understand kind of what makes them tick. You get to walk through the plant and you're absolutely right. You get to see whole parts of America and whole industries that maybe you would otherwise have no reason as a lawyer, you know, in our case in Chicago to be involved in. So in addition to being our first management side attorney, you're also, I think, our first guest to talk about the labor side of things. So tell us a little bit about how do those negotiations work? Is it just everyone's at a big conference room for a day? Is it, my suspicion is it's longer than a day, having talked to some folks who it, do that type of work. 
It's never a day. If it were a day, I'd have a lot more days off. It varies because, you know, federal labor law, the National Labor Relations Act sets out this general, you know, you have a duty to bargain collectively, but all the details and the logistics are left to the parties. And it can be all over the place. I will say lately, it's been because of the pandemic, a lot of Zoom negotiations, which presents so many challenges to try and negotiate over, you know, terms and conditions that may affect hundreds or thousands of employees on a Zoom call. I would say the most typical kind of pre-pandemic and what I hope will return to historical norm is, is much like that. It may be a hotel ballroom. It may be the conference room at the, at the company site. It may be a union hall. And it's a bunch of tables lined up and, and maybe you're looking face to face and you've got a, a kind of a company management committee and you're looking opposite the union committee. And that those committees vary greatly. Sometimes the committees are 10 to 15 people. Sometimes it's a couple of people. And it's sort of a, a horse trading, if you will, back and forth proposals, counter proposals. It's sort of like a, an employment litigation settlement conference but on steroids and affecting a lot more than just a single plaintiff or a group of plaintiffs. So it's really interesting. And, and no two of them are the same. Often it's dictated by what the historical practice is for that particular union or company. And then each side will generally have a sort of a chief spokesperson to avoid uh, talking. And not surprisingly, the spokesperson for each side can really set the tone in terms of the level of formality and, and kind of the approach and the, the overall feel of the negotiations. Well, one other thing that I think different than employment litigation or a settlement conference is on that side of things, you know, it's, there's an end game. You have a settlement, you walk away from each other. When you're doing these collective bargaining negotiations, ideally everyone's going to have to work together afterwards. So how does that impact the process, the adversarial, but non-adversarial aspect of things? Yeah. I mean, the stakes are so much higher. And, and I think all of us as labor and employment attorneys are almost part-time sort of social workers, counselors, therapists, because of the emotions that are involved and in, in trying to kind of patch things. And that's so true at, at the negotiations table, because yes, at, for someone like me as the lawyer, I get to remove myself. I don't have to go into the plant the next day. I'll still be involved in administering that contract and, and trying to keep things on track during the life of the contract, which usually three, four years down the road. But the parties, I mean, it's it's a very different feel because they do have to see each other. And I've had instances where on my team, it's supervisors, and you can just feel the tension between the supervisors kind of on my side, or maybe a business owner, depending on the situation, and the, and the, the union employees on the other side. And it makes it interesting and, and requires so much more than just typical legal maneuvering. You really have to be sort of a psychologist and, and be able to deescalate situations, kind of serve. You're, a, you're an advocate, but you also become a mediator frequently in those situations where I've had ones where there's literally almost physical fights um, in the negotiations. We kind of have to go all go take a break. So it's, that's why I say it's, it's like a settlement conference, but on steroids and there's no judge in the room to break things up. You're in each other's face. And you're talking about issues that impact uh, a whole workforce. And again, you know, whatever we agree to for a wage scale, it's going to go three or four years into the future. I mean, it, it's going to be some time before they can revisit that. So the stakes are incredibly high. Emotions are high. And I think that's what makes it all the more interesting uh, and enjoyable. If you can get through those sorts of negotiations and work out a deal and have a client who's happy, I, I think from a, from a management lawyer, business development perspective, there's no better way to get further business from a client than to help them through a sticky union-related situation. They'll be your client for life if you can help them. Go ahead, Amit. Oh, so 
we, you know, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about your style of negotiating. And I think it's coming out a lot clearer now that you're talking about CBA. So tell us about how, how do you try to negotiate cases, both in a union setting or even in a typical litigation setting when you're dealing with counsel or employees who have separated? I mean, my approach always starts from the principle that I want to be as respectful and professional and understanding as I can. I have I have no appetite to be nasty. I don't think it's beneficial, and I'm a firm believer in that. And, and I think Max will, will tell you that. I've, I've had a case with him, and I think he saw that, and that's typical. I just It has no benefit to me, nor do I enjoy it, personally. I get no enjoyment out of being nasty with people and spending my day arguing. I get plenty of that back. And I just sort of brush it off. My approach is always, I'll be a gentleman. I'll be professional. If you want to spit nastiness at me, go for it. It won't help you. I'll tell you that repeatedly. It might actually hurt you and frequently does. But I just try to be respectful. And the other thing I try to do along with that is try to truly understand whatever the other side's perspective is, because each case is different and labor is different than employment. But if you take sort of a typical single plaintiff employee case, someone on the other side is very upset and and feels like they've been wronged. They may not even understand the nuances of the law, but they're unhappy for some reason. And so when I have clients that say, well, this, you know, this just, we didn't do anything wrong. There was no discrimination. It's okay. Well, that's, that's all good. And well, that's what we'll argue, but realize when you're asking me to call this plaintiff's counsel, they've got a client who's livid, who might be crying, who might be stressed out. So you're going to have to give me something more than that. And you're going to have to try to understand at least what their perception was. You can disagree the whole way there, but if you want a good outcome, you need to try to understand what their perspective is and try to offer them something that they're going to view as valuable. Your perspective is important, but you also have to understand the other sides. And I think it's consistent with what I said a minute ago. Being nasty to an opposing counsel isn't going to help me understand their case any better. And I know that personally, when I deal with lawyers who are nasty, they're frequently the last person I want to call back. They're the first person I'll tell the client, I personally don't want to settle with this lawyer, but you tell me what you want to do, but I'm happy to fight with this lawyer. And so I always tell plaintiff's counsel, it's, it's a disservice to be that way because you're not getting a better outcome. Maybe you're vindicating your, your macho-ness or your desire to have a perception as, as kind of the big nasty lawyer, but that's not what's going to benefit your client. You know, at the end of the day, we're all people, right? Like you, you, you said yourself, I mean, Amit and I hammer at this a lot because it, I don't know what the percentage is, but a lot of what we do is just people management in both directions. And like, it's just common sense. It's like being with the, when we used to go in person to courts, right? Like if you want the clerk to help you, giving them the middle finger and yelling at them is not going to make them move your case faster, right? Like being rude to the judge and blowing off something they tell you isn't going to move it. Like I think David Lee even said it or Rich said it about David Lee at some point. Like when you send these letters and your client wants you to torch the other side, at least on the plaintiff side, be nice to them you're trying to get them to give you money. like. <laughs> yeah. And the other reality you have to keep in mind too, because it happens all the time. It's not me. As I mentioned, I'm a career management side person, but at any moment in time, someone can switch sides. You know, you can go from the, I think you guys are on the dark side now that we're at that point and I'm on the good side, I'm with the force, but we could switch. I mean, tomorrow I could decide I want to do it. So you have a reputation just generally in, in the legal community. And even in Chicago, the gigantic city that it is, I can't tell you how many times I run into the same people over and over again. So it's a small, particularly in the LE space, but you might be the person on the other side's coworker at some point. There are plenty of very successful lawyers. And I can think of a few in the Chicago area who've gone maybe from one side to the other, or maybe they've gone back and forth a few times. So it just doesn't benefit you. I don't understand it. And it's very frustrating when I come across those lawyers who, who behave in that way. 
maybe they took the different message from the legal shows they watched. You took the, you know, you fight for whatever justice is to you. You fight for it and you're passionate, but you're appropriate. And they took the look, they yelled and screamed and they got their way. And it's like, well, four-year-olds think that way. And it doesn't, you know, we, we try to disabuse them of that notion over time. Well, and it goes back to, I mean, at my core, as much as I escape it, and as long as I've been in Chicago, I'm very Southern in some ways. There, there are many aspects about the Deep South uh, that I do not agree with at all. And maybe that might explain in a nutshell why I don't live there. But there are sort of some intrinsic qualities, I think, and, and it's things like respect and civility. I've got a little bit of that old school, maybe Southern lawyer approach to things. And it's just, it's the authentic me. And I think the best way for me to represent my client's interests and to get the best outcomes is to be the real me. It's the easiest thing to be. And thus far, knock on wood, I've done a pretty good job of doing it. So I'm going to stick with it. I'll vouch for that. We had a case that I think had frankly been languishing for a while. When it got to my lap, it was, you know, some deadlines were passed a couple times over and you were very kind. I didn't get a nasty gram. It was, you know, a phone call. Hey, this is David. Nice to meet you. I'll be working this case with you. You know, noticed a couple deadlines. I didn't blow them, but they happened. And, you know, he goes, you know, I noticed we're having some trouble keeping to some deadlines. And before I start sending out you know, nasty grams. I like to kind of figure out what's going on here. And I have to tell you for a case that had sat around for several years, you and I worked remarkably well and it got done as far as, as painless as a case like that can be. And we're not going to go into specifics for obvious reasons for our listeners. Like that was about as painless as we could have asked for. And it, I think probably two different lawyers, it doesn't go that way or even one different. I think it's a great example. Yes. And that's my approach to, to any case, whether it's low stakes, high stakes, whatever the facts are, I just think it works the best. And, you know, then it's, you create a reputation where I hope, you know, when those listserv emails go out and you file suit and you hear that it's, it's, it's me or my colleagues at Barnes that you'll think, okay, good lawyer, good person, someone we can deal with. That's all you can ask for. That's all I really want and strive for, because again, we're all part of the same legal community. And so I don't care so much if you're plaintiff side, your defense side, you're at this firm or that. It's all people to me. And you're you're a good person, you're a good lawyer, or you're not. And I've got plenty of people who, who I would put in the not a good lawyer, not a good person category. And that's fine. I just avoid them like the plague as much as I can. Maybe it is a Southern thing because my partner's from South Carolina as well. And he's got the same, his favorite saying, which is not his, he didn't come up with it is, but you know, you can disagree without being disagreeable, right? Like that's exactly right. And it's, you know, it's so cliche, but I don't have disagreements with opposing counsel, maybe sometimes on procedural matters, right? But by and large, the disagreements are over the merits or or lack thereof, over the law and things that aren't personal to me. So I'm always trying to, to keep in mind that when it starts to turn personal, we're all advocates, we're all advocating for a position. And so I don't have a disagreement with Ahmed. I don't have a disagreement with Maxis so much as we just have a disagreement on the facts or maybe under lease law, our clients just vehemently disagree. And our job in those situations is to find whatever's the best outcome for our clients. Maybe it's a settlement, maybe it's not, but to sort of put aside that personal stuff. You can have a disagreement without making it personal. And I think that's where I think those, the attorneys that do it that way are the most productive attorneys in terms of getting the best outcome for their clients. But how do you handle situations where your client wants you to blow everything up or light everything on fire? Well, it's I, I try not to work with those clients, and I've been fortunate not to have too many. I think it goes to another, you know, this notion that we talked about earlier that all corporations are big and nasty. I haven't found that, and I've been doing this well, more years than I can be, over a decade. They're usually not that way. There are some some situations where I've had some friction, and and I try to educate the clients, and most of the time I find 
if you talk to them and are reasonable and explain, you know, I've got a reputation, I'm trying to help you here, but take my advice. You hired me for a reason. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Usually that works. There are rare situations where maybe I've had a client who's just adamant that maybe a nasty gram needs to be sent or some position needs to be taken. And, and if I feel like I'm at that point where there's no other option, usually what I'll do is I'll just pick up the phone and call the other person and say, Hey, I get where you're coming from, had some discussions on my end. I've got some marching orders that just are what they are. I'm going to send you something. It is what it is. Let's still talk. I don't want you to, to see it and freak out or blow up and sort of, you know, warn them that it's coming. And I think that's been effective. I've had some calls back sometimes after I send it to say, geez, you weren't lying. This is, uh, this is the real deal. And usually people are understanding because frankly, I've had those conversations come back at me where someone on the plaintiff side, so I've got a client that needs to see something go out. So I need to send this so that I can forward it on to say, they get it. I'm being firm for you because clients do want to see that, right? They don't, there's this perception amongst clients. I think it's on both sides that if you're being nice, you're somehow not doing a good job. And the mean, nasty lawyer is the good lawyer. And that's, that's clearly a theme of what we talked about, right? Something that I push back against, but it does exist out there. And so there are instances where maybe you need to, to put something across the other side, just to show your client. All right, we did it. Now let's, let's get back to kind of what's most important here. Yeah, I'm a big phone person because I think a lot of times in writing, you're writing not necessarily for the merits of the case or for any other reason, but more so for your client's behalf because they want a certain tone. And so when I get those nasty grams, it's just easier to pick up the phone and say, let's just do it over the phone moving forward. Yeah, and I'm always leery of, of lawyers that don't pick up the phone, don't return my calls, kind of the, the email champions, as I think of them. Those people make me nervous because I can't get a real read on them. I don't know if they're socially awkward, if, if, you know, they're afraid to be caught kind of cold in the moment and they need advanced time to think. But those cases with those kinds of lawyers, they generally don't go that well. If I can't get a hold of you on the phone and be able to have a reasoned discussion, then I'm going to start going, what's going on? I've called you a hundred times. You never call. You email me back, but we need to have a conversation. It's so much more efficient. I mean, that's, that's again, highlights a point on the, on the management side where we're working hourly nine times out of 10 in cases. The last thing I want to have is a bill that goes out to my client that, that shows all these emails back and forth because they can add up. Because then I've had clients say, well, could you just get on the phone? Could a 10-minute phone call have saved what's, what's an hour back and forth? And they're right. So much efficiently can be done on a phone call. So I have that added incentive and sort of stick in, in that I'm thinking of, of a client. And there are several of them that way that just don't like to see lots of emails because they are inefficient. Well, I think that's a perfect transition. So what are a lot, what are the factors that clients on your side care about from a resolution standpoint? What's driving them to resolve a case? I think they always have some view towards right and wrong, but I would say that the significance and the weight that receives varies significantly from one client to the next. I have clients I've worked with over the years. Some of them are at the far end of the spectrum where they take a very, what I think of as a business-like approach. They pull out a calculator. They say, what are your fees going to cost, David? How much is it going to cost to get through summary judgment? What's the likelihood of winning on summary judgment? And they take kind of an accountant's or CPA perspective. And at the other end of the spectrum, I've had clients that get so entrenched in the right and wrong and can we win and they can lose sight. Most clients, I would say on the management side are somewhere in between. They do absolutely have 
a desire to sort of vindicate the company and prove that something didn't happen that was unlawful. But at the same time, it, you know, all you have to do is look at the statistics in terms of the number of cases that settle and particularly my sophisticated clients. Now, the likelihood of a case, particularly if you think of a, a typical single plaintiff case or, or really even in the class and collective action space, so many of those cases settle. So they start usually from the, from the framework of this thing's going to settle at some point. What's a reasonable amount? How can we get this thing across the finish line? And some days that kind of takes the, you know, it takes the wind out of my sails because I think of what life would be like if we could litigate more of these cases and take them. But at the same time, I understand that that more often than not just doesn't make sense. It's just, unfortunately, the reality of our legal system is it, it frequently costs too much and the stakes are such that it doesn't make sense for either side to go that far. And I would say that's even more true now with the pandemic. And many of my clients have just, some of them have struggled, frankly, to, to kind of keep things going. And so it's, it's definitely changed views of settlement. And that's why I enjoy the variety in practice, not just doing, if I was just settling litigation matters all day, I'd probably be completely bored at, at trying to tweak the same settlement agreement creatively over and over again. So I do enjoy the variety. Is there sort of sticking with that, but veering a little bit, are there, we did a recent interview that has not um, been released yet where we talked about non-monetary provisions and settlement that are often sticking points or that people will say are standard or not standard. So this is going to be another uh, compound question that would be wildly inappropriate in a courtroom setting, but I'm going to do it anyway here because I can. This is twofold. Are there any, are there any non-monetary provisions that you've seen before that you found to be interesting sticking points in a settlement negotiation and then spreading out a little further, this one's in a different direction. But one thing I've come across a couple of times more recently is people who are still with the company or who want to come back to a company. I had somebody last year who actually got reinstated and the management lawyer on the other side said he'd been doing this probably three or four times as long as I had and said flat out, I don't think I'll ever see this again. This is the first time. Something like that, where it requires somebody to get paid to essentially, as some of the management side folks I've talked to say it, our, our client just doesn't want to pay people to sue them. Have you ever had it where somebody can manage to stay with the company? And then I guess dovetailing into that non-monetary thing, how do those things interplay sometimes? Yeah. And that was a wildly inappropriate. I, I was trying to keep track of all the objections I would have. <laughs> I'm an object uh, to 50, yeah. 50 four. of them. Yeah, four. When in doubt. <laughs> I love those jurisdictions, by the way. There's some in the South. If you've taken depths down that way and you're subject to the local rule, there are some states that as a rule don't allow, you know, they might call it no speaking objections, but what it means in practice is you can't even clarify the basis for a form objection. It literally needs to be objection form. If you were to say objection form compound question, that's a speaking objection. It's off limits. So Objection form, Max. Sustained and accepted. <laughs> yeah. Subject to and without waiving. That's another topic we could, maybe that'll be episode two. <laughs> oh, yeah. Useless legal nomenclature that just pollutes legal writing. But my um, favorite is the opening preamble in every document lawyer's files. Now comes, now comes. the plaintiff through their law firm and files this. What they're they're most and- honorable lawyers who traveled here with trespass and armis and whatever other nonsense. By and through their counsel. I, I get the by part, but I'm never, how is it through them? Like, is it coming through them? Yeah. I, when I hear the, when I see now comes, I hear like wedding bells. It's useless. Please, if you're listening to this podcast, stop saying now <laughs> comes or as wherefore you're, you're taking up paper with useless. Now turning back to um, my ridiculous to Max's question. question. Yeah. 
The non-monetary piece is hard. I think in it varies case to case, but I frankly have not had a lot of luck in terms of coming up with non-monetary terms creatively. And many times that happens at sort of when, when negotiations effectively hit an impasse and I'm staring at, at opposing counsel saying, you think this case should settle. I think this case should settle. What are we missing here? Can we massage the tax allocation? Can I get you some job assistance benefits? Would a, a stronger than neutral reference ladder change your client's view? Would something, I mean, there's only sort of the, the typical litany and more often than not, it's not going to you know tip the scales back in favor of settlement. It's usually the dollars and cents is what it comes down to. As to the reinstatement piece, I, like like the, the person that you talked to, I have seen more reinstatements in the midst of the COVID pandemic than I had seen in the 10 years before that. And I guess it doesn't surprise me because as I mentioned a minute ago, I've had many clients that truly are facing existential threats. And so there have been, I can think of three offhand in the last year, year and a half situations where I had, in one, I told opposing counsel, this client will never agree to reinstate. I've never seen it before. It's never going to happen. And then I had to make that sort of walk of shame callback. Right? So about that, it turns out they might be willing. I was able to convince them. For you. They just might willing, act now, to reinstate. And, and usually <laughs> what it boils down to is just they have no employees. And so if you've got an employee who wasn't a terrible employee, at least in the company's view, and left under circumstances that the company can kind of get their head around bringing them back. And they're not the type that's going to go be a loudspeaker of, hey, I sued the company. I have seen more of those. I am worried that they will start to go back away if and when, and hopefully that's soon, the job market ticks back up. Because nine out of 10 times in, in my 11 years of doing this, there just weren't many situations where reinstatement was available. There are times where your clients want to settle or resolve a case more so because of the non-monetary terms? They want to buy confidentiality or non-disparagement or some other term like that? There are t times when that happens. Now, you know, it won't surprise you to hear, and I'm not sharing confidences. Some of those terms maybe are worth the paper they're written on and maybe they're not. And so I try to always have those sorts of general discussions that I'm sure my management colleagues have as well. You know, my personal favorite is the disparage, non-disparagement provision that I've had literally stretch out negotiations by weeks. You know, we want this tweak to the non-disparagement. We want this group of people to be involved. Confidentiality certainly is a big one. But, you know, when we start with those as the norm in most settlements, it doesn't leave, at least in my experience, a ton of room to negotiate off of those. Certainly, I've never had a client say, hey, we'll make this a non-confidential settlement, even if they understand sort of what the risk reward is. So there are some interesting battles that I've had over the years and those sorts of provisions, but it is disappointing, I guess, uh, in, in a sense, if you look at it, that so often the dollars are what's driving it. I would love for it to be something more exotic than that, where there's an opportunity to kind of get in the weeds and, and craft things. And there are cases like that, but frequently it's more dollars and cents. Now, the creativity can can be a little different in labor cases. It can be a little different in class collective action cases where you've got bigger stakes. Maybe you can make some tweaks on policies. Maybe there are some other sort of uh, cutting edge things going behind the scenes. Maybe you could, you know, I think there was a recent case that, that settled largely for some gift cards. There's more opportunities in those cases than your typical single plaintiff. And that's why I do enjoy them. But, but if you're looking at a classic single plaintiff, much of it is almost formulaic and fill in the blank. Yeah, I'm sure that's the 
that's the fun part about your collective bargaining negotiations. That's not dollars and cents. It's everything else. For the most no, part. it's, it's human emotion and, you know, extrapolating what's this benefit going to cost to the company. It's being able to explain, you know, how the company views things, trying to understand. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's bigger stakes and it's just such a different feel if you've gone through at the level of emotion. I mean, I, just to give you a, a concrete example of what I say when I mean the emotion, I mean, I've sat in collective bargaining negotiations so many times where someone starts crying in the middle of it. And many times these are tough guys. If you look at them and then, I mean, because you really start to see how impactful what you're talking about is on, you know, the next three, four years of their life. Because again, it goes back to that theme, right? They still have to go into work the next day and work there. They're not moving on. They haven't found a new job. This is very personal to them and, and truly will affect their livelihood day to day going forward. Have you, we want to be respectful of your time, so we won't keep you forever, but I, I had a couple more questions that are sort of tying in pandemic to, to the collective bargaining work. The problems on the plaintiff side we've been hearing from people have changed dramatically from the start of the pandemic to now, right? So like when no vaccines were available, you know, a lot of companies were in some, I actually was very sympathetic, I have to say, both to the management lawyers who like everybody I talked to was working for 30 days straight, 50 days straight, just because the law kept changing every day. And they had clients who were going belly up left and right and, and all of that. But, but also like, you know, from our, so now it's okay, vaccines, vaccine mandates and what have you. Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer. I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all of our guest stories. And we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois and the show. Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share. And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review. But only if it's going to be a five-star rating. Yeah, otherwise we're all set. Were there any situations in a union context where employers and the union were more aligned than maybe you had seen them before because workplace safety and just keeping businesses afloat suddenly became very mutual interests? Or, or I guess on the other side of it, did it get worse in any scenarios? It's a little bit of both. I would say, frankly, more on the positive side where you're, you've had opportunities to come together. Vaccine mandates, as you mentioned, is one of them. I've had some clients that are adamant uh, about vaccine mandates. And obviously that continues to change by the day with, with Biden's order and, 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 and the continuing issues there. I've had some really nasty drag out disputes with unions over vaccine mandates. On the other hand, I've had some unions that have said, we fully support this and we'll get our membership in line. And, you know, the, the bargaining, so to speak, felt completely different from your normal wage reopen or other things. And I think some of that, you know, health and safety is something that companies and unions can definitely all get on board with. And everybody wants to protect workers. And definitely the threat of business closures, furloughs, layoffs that we saw, particularly in some, you know, some manufacturing, for example, some of the food industries, hospitality and tourism, some of those, those industries that were devastated and are still trying to kind of get out of the gutter on those things. I had some very candid and positive discussions with union leaders, maybe some in some instances that I had nasty discussions with before, where they said, we're just trying to make sure our rank and file have jobs. Can you give us assurances? We can be flexible with you. We can reopen wage provisions. We can things that that legally and pragmatically would have never happened outside of a pandemic. So yeah, there's been a lot of positive developments, and and I've seen the same thing 
just across the board in my practice. I've seen opposing counsel being more reasonable. You're getting a better sense of who people are when they're negotiating with you from, from home and people are struggling with things. I think in the midst of all the crisis, it's really changed the practice of L&E law and in a lot of ways for the better. So I was initially skeptical of doing uh, virtual or Zoom mediations, I think for single plaintiff cases or for typical employment cases, but I, I, now I'm a big fan. How has Zoom and virtual stuff impacted CBA negotiations? It's still sort of, I would say it's easier in that context that you're talking about. It, it's a hard fit in the union negotiation context for most companies, because again, going back to what I said, that might be, you know, it's going to depend on each situation. But for those types of clients that have committees of, of five or 10, even people on one side, you try to get 20 people in a Zoom and have some meaningful level of discourse and back and forth is very challenging. The other thing that's different that, that presents some challenges on the Zoom platform and union negotiations, as I mentioned before, it's really sort of an old school horse trading. So some unions have gotten a little bit more modern in PDFing or Word document proposals back and forth, but kind of the old school way that you still see, and in particularly certain parts of, of the country with certain old school unions, old fashioned, I mean, it's literally a piece of paper. Sometimes it's handwritten or it's typed out and we will pass them back and forth, take them into you know a caucus, write up on the piece of paper, and you just lose the ability completely to do that in Zoom and to have that, let me hand you over my paper or let me lean over your shoulder. See, this is the provision here that's important to the company. And, and we want to know from the union in 2.3B here, the second line right here, what do you mean by this? And it's just... Zoom for all of its benefits, that's really hard to do on Zoom. I've seen Zoom be beneficial outside of sort of core negotiations where maybe you've got just a spokesperson to spokesperson. There are other ways it can help. But if, you, if you're talking about kind of the heart of collective bargaining negotiations, I've yet to, to have a good experience that can really replicate sort of that in-person feel because of the way mechanically they play out. That to me seems like to be the biggest impact is the emotional side of things. You can't have the same rapport over Zoom, so it's desensitized. And I don't know if that's good or bad. It seems generally it's going to be worse, but maybe that also de-escalates some tension. It definitely does, yeah. But I think I think the drawbacks are outweigh the benefits because you really need in those situations to get a sense of the room to be able to feel emotion and trying to scan through, you know people's faces across the zoom you just can't get a read for what's going on and i found in some instances the people that you'd want to get a read on are the ones that either shut their camera off or disappear and so you're just left blindly you know how are you feeling what's going on there you just lose that kind of tactile feel of what's happening that said it's completely efficient and, and there are situations where i have no interest to be traveling to sort of the flyover states or other parts of the country and clients don't want to necessarily spend that time so I think it's, it's lagging behind the employment side. I hope that maybe someone, some genius who's smarter than me comes up with a way to sort of tweak that platform that would better fit it. David, we want to be respectful of your time. So Ahmed, I think it's your, David's a listener, so you won't be able to spring anything on him, but go for it. Yeah, you know our next segment. So we want to do our shout out of the week. As you know, it can be a person, it can be a book, it can be a TV show. We're going to cheat a little bit because I'm going to do a shout out to you for giving us so much of your time, especially because- you, have, you told us in pre-recording notes, you have five kids, another one on the way. So your time is very limited. So we do appreciate that. No problem. So do you um, have a shout out? 
you know, I should have known that this was coming and I'm, I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying, Max, why don't you go first and let me think of who I could give a shout out oh to. Oh my God. Who am oh, I? I like shouting? this. Who am I, I like putting Max on the spot here. It's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I always tell my wife that whenever some pedant, like banal and stupid has happened, like I have to go pick something up from across the room. I'll tell her this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And the joke continues to be lost on her. So maybe I should stop making it because she doesn't think it's funny. I do. Um, I'm going to shout out my, she's my favorite. I'll shout out my daughter. She's been talking up a storm. She's just turned one about a month ago. And I didn't really like children. I'm not like you, David. I didn't really like children before. I wasn't sure I wanted them. And Daria is just the best thing ever. I, I couldn't imagine my life without her. And every time I get a high dive, when I come home from work, I like, you know, I, I melt. So whatever nastiness happens, that stuff's always wonderful for me. I'll, well, let I'll me... do it. I'll do another one too, actually. So I'm going to shout out Max's family because they're saving me a carrot cake. Uh, <laughs> and I'm very excited about this. The last one I had was really good. I'm going to cheat a little bit and copy. So with those caveats, I, I will give a shout out to my kids as well. As Max mentioned, I have five. Number six is coming next week. So we're we're all ready and excited for that. I think in the midst of the pandemic, you know, being able to see my kids as much as it makes me realize how much I missed before. And they always give me perspective, you know, when I'm dealing with maybe that that infamous nasty lawyer, and then you get to turn and have a kid, it just it grounds you. The other shout out I'll give is, is to my wife. I mean, she she is a lawyer. We actually met in law school and graduated together. She's got her own practice estate planning and elder law. And now she's a mother soon to be six and she's still killing it in her career. And I couldn't be prouder. So shout out to her, Lauren Weldon. I, I will also shout out David's wife because that's beyond impressive. I barely make it work and I'm not even the, and I'm not the female who had to birth the child. So to exactly. have six of them and still be uh, thriving like that is something I can't even quantify. She's David. a power player. <laughs> David, we are so eternal. Anything you want to plug? You are very active on social media. You do a lot of good work advising employers, keeping them, keeping them compliant, giving good information out to people. So I know you're very active in that vein. Anything you like? Barnes. Barnes does a great job of CLE programming, stuff like that for other attorneys. Yeah, we. I really do make an effort on social media, and and it was just this morning or yesterday. I don't remember what the rankings was, so my marketing team will be very disappointed in me for that. But the firm just got ranked in the top ten of. And basically the, the ranking is most active sort of getting the message out. So obviously, you know, your audience may be more plaintiff side tilted, but I would say, take a look at, at, at our website at, at btlaw.com. We've got a labor relations blog and an employment blog that's called Currents. I write for both of those blogs. It's a great resource. And I frequently, especially on the defense side, I'll tell people, if I need to know what's going on, I'll cheat and look at your blogs, but um, I'd encourage you to visit there. We've got, we do have a lot of good information and certainly for anyone you know, that's listing that needs guidance. If you're interested in the LNE space, you know, mentorship, just someone to kick around ideas with, feel free to reach out. I, I love talking with, especially younger lawyers. It's always rejuvenating. So I would encourage anyone reach out to me. Um, I'm happy to serve as a resource. I'll, I'll, like I said, I'll, I'll plug David as well in that vein. You've been, you were a pleasure when I got the chance to work with you. Amit and I were so thrilled when you reached out. It was a really lucky thing to have happen. We're grateful that you gave us your time when you are very clearly a very busy guy. You got a lot on your plate. We're grateful you were willing to share your information with us and sort of come into hostile territory. And just thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Hopefully when I go back and log back in my computer this evening, I haven't been removed from all defense council groups. And I don't have an email waiting. Now that you've you've visited with the enemies, you're no longer welcome. If so, then we might be colleagues soon enough. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, to the defense folks, please don't excommunicate David. He's a good guy. He's a good, great lawyer. And you definitely want him in your midst. 
Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.